Welcome to the Scale Up Valley podcast, where we bring the best of the best to help you scale your business from 1 million to 1 trillion. Today's guest is Giuseppe Giordano, the co-founder and CEO at Innerbrain. Giuseppe, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Mike. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Likewise. So yeah, it'd be great to get to know more about yourself and uh, about the amazing story that you have shared with me before uh, of how you started up uh, Innerbrain and why. All right, absolutely. So uh, my background, I was uh, born in Torino, which is uh, Northeast Italy. Um, uh, my background is in architecture. So I uh, um, learned uh, how to design mostly like commercial buildings. I then did an experience uh, abroad uh, in London, uh, working in um, designing industrial building as well. And um, I happened to, um, uh, to extend my study in the US. Uh, and I found myself in Austin, Texas, uh, taking a master in sustainable design. Uh, where um, I, I met this professor that was really like pushing us, encouraging us uh, to uh, explore a little bit more like entrepreneurship paths uh, and uh, uh, through, um, through an incubator program, like a startup program at uh, UT Austin, I, I did a hackathon and there basically I started uh, getting uh, involved in technology and in energy specifically. So um, my role as a designer architect was more thinking about the product, uh, the storytelling, so, which is a very important piece of the equation. Usually you have, uh, uh, you know, storytelling Absolutely. and then somebody that is uh, taking care of the product itself and then the sales. Uh, so it was more product marketing. And uh, I did uh, an interesting experience. Uh, back then we were doing uh, um, basically a gamification about energy monitoring, which was a hot topic in 2013. Exactly. <laughs> and um, I became interested in, in the world of energy. I met Marco uh, from, uh, from Torino, my hometown. And Marco was working on a very interesting problem of optimization, of automation. So from my point of view, uh, Extracting data and monitoring was uh, a great value, but closing the loop uh, was uh, much more uh, interesting and appealing. Stronger, uh, like a stronger solution. So with Marco, um, the story goes that there was a very cold winter back uh, uh, 2014, same, uh, same around the same time. Um, and he was basically, he's a physicist as a, as a background. And so he started wondering how he would um, need to control his uh, domestic heater to obtain uh, uh, steady comfort and, uh, and savings. Because uh, there was a time where temperature was shifting, uh, you know, minus 10, plus 10, minus 10, like uh, drastically. And so he started to understand that through an equation, he could uh, take into account uh, all the key parameters, uh, such as the inertia, um, the usage of the building, how many people, uh, weather forecast. And he was solving manually this equation, uh, controlling the knob, uh, and uh, he learned that he could actually get a very steady comfort uh, and uh, about 30% energy savings. 
So me and him started to approach customers uh, to understand, you know, to do a little bit of market validation. And um, we learned that the interesting that there was a really interesting this solution, and so we basically started doing a first round of uh, fundraising. We approached the first customer, which uh, is Lingotto. It's one of the largest cities in Torino. It's one of the largest buildings in Torino, a former Fiat factory. When it was built, it was the largest factory in the world. To give you an idea, uh, and this was maybe speaks a little bit about. Uh, it was a, like a ballsy move uh, <laughs> on our end because we thought, okay, your domestic heater is very interesting uh, as a problem, but it's not really going to make a big impact. So let's try uh, and find the, the largest uh, boiler, the largest heater that we can, uh, um, you know, that we can think of. So we went to the customer. Uh, we um, we basically um, did a proof of concept, fully paid. And then uh, after this proof of concept, uh, we saved uh, 30% energy savings. And the, the main idea was to share these savings with the customer. Uh, so in the same time, uh, we basically got a technical and a commercial validation. And from that point, uh, you know, the initial team of four people be, grew to eight. Uh, one year later, we were 16, uh, 30. Uh, we are 50 today and we're going to be 70, operating from uh, uh, 12 markets today, mostly Europe, uh, not just Europe. Uh, we, we do um, have activities and installation in Middle East and Asia. And uh, so, yeah, this is uh, in a nutshell the story. And the brain's mission is really to put more uh, intelligence, uh, that's where, uh, in, in, in buildings. And this is where the name comes from because we feel... Uh, like uh, intelligence is really the weak uh, link uh, in the in the chain and it's really something where uh, leveraging ai machine learning iot is um, a real uh, um, kind of vertical application that has uh, multi multiple benefits so the benefits are for the users first of all because uh, we guarantee steady comfort we control the air quality, which is very important uh, in this time, because through CO2, you, you can understand if the environment is safe or not. If there is enough uh, uh, fresh air, it's, it's a parameter that we use uh, to determine occupation and uh, you know, air quality. Uh, for the, the companies, the organizations that are managing the building, we give them better tools. We decrease significantly uh, complaints. We give them visibility on the status of the system. Uh, on a higher level, we guarantee the asset owners to, um, to kind of transform their buildings with a cost-effective solution and, and a scalable solution, which is the most important thing. And uh, one layer above, uh, we are basically uh, orchestrating everything that is happening at the scale of a building at the scale of the city. So the energy community and all the services uh, that will be enabled by the smart grid. Got it. That's quite an amazing story. Thanks for, for sharing it with, with the community. Just to for the for the, the skilled founders and leaders that are listening to, to the podcast, 
Uh, could you give us a little bit more of a nuance? You talked that you are 50 people at, uh, at this time. So what is kind of the revenue branch? And uh, are you at Series A, moving to Series B? So a little bit more of extra insights on the stage of growth that you are in within a brand. Yeah, so 2020 was a challenging year, uh, but we are still getting 90% uh, of our target that we set in January. Uh, so we're going to close the year at 4 million in revenues. Uh, next year, we plan on doubling that to eight. And we want to reach 22 million by 2022. Actually, sorry, 2023. I don't know if you can cut it, but... Uh, yeah, don't, don't worry, this, this is a normal conversation. Don't, don't worry to... to uh, edited but um good in terms of funding rounds so uh you are then raising a series b uh round round oh uh in uh, we are in negotiation uh, as of now with a major uh, european utility to actually uh, extend our market uh, in uh, in other uh, distribute our, our product in other markets uh, where this utility operates uh, and uh, we are looking at around uh, uh, three to five million uh, uh, investment uh, uh, which for us uh, will be around B. Right, got it. Perfect. So we have the story now we have more context about the, the stage of growth for, for the ones who are tuning in. And uh, we always discuss three critical ingredients to scale in the show. Number one is radical focus. Number two is world-class uh, leadership slash team slash culture. We keep editing this one. And number three is a culture of uh, execution. So starting with radical focus, it's very tempting for any company that starts scaling to try to approach every single avenue of growth. And it creates also a lot of fear to say no to potential avenues of growth. So of course we know that in this industry, the total addressable markets, the size of the market and opportunity needs to be big, but we need to go niche after niche. So kind of summarizing what we discuss a lot of times on the show, uh, the, need, the, the riches are in the niches. And uh, in, in that way, as you said, it's, it's important to create the narrative, the storytelling also about how we will achieve our vision in the short, in the mid and in, in the long term. So what have been some of your lessons uh, assuring that you stay focused with inner brain along your uh, startup and scale up journey? Yeah, absolutely. So um, our idea was uh, from the very beginning to develop a, a retrofit solution, uh, which uh, is surprisingly a niche because not many uh, technology companies are actually uh, aware, actually uh, occupying this space. So our um, we, in a way, we produce uh, uh, energy management systems, uh, which, uh, um, which also Siemens, Honeywell, Schneider, Johnson Control. Uh, so these are like, uh, in, you know, incumbents uh, uh, of a certain yeah. size. Yeah. Um, That's awesome. <laughs> exactly, but uh, 
their business model is really when an, an hospital gets built uh, to win the bid, uh, to uh, install uh, the system, and then to sell maintenance services for 20 years. Uh, this is roughly the, life size, the lifespan of a system. Um, when something breaks uh, or it's out of warranty, you need to refer back. Uh, so there is a, like a vendor locked in, lock in, in, uh, in this, uh, in this uh, regard. Uh, the issue from the customer side is that if you have a portfolio of uh, 10, 50, uh, 500, 1,000 building, uh, you're probably going to face uh, a significant fragmentation of uh, technologies, of uh, uh, brands and so on. So our idea was uh, the initial patent uh, around uh, this uh, man-in-the-middle approach. So we basically interfere in the control signal in between the central system and uh, the, the field uh, components. And uh, this approach is patented and it really allows us uh, to go faster, to never break the warranty and to be fail safe. Because as a man in the middle, we basically uh, correct in real time the instruction, uh, but we can also be bypassed. And this is actually one of the way we use uh, when we approach a customer. So there is a test uh, period uh, in which we show the functioning of your building uh, when it's operated by Enerbrain and when it's operated by the original system in uh, four or eight uh, alternative weeks. So you need to think of Enerbrain as a supervisor. Uh, this is uh, the, the core of... Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's really, it's really that. And it's surprisingly that this, is, uh, this concept uh, gives uh, really incredible results uh, with a short uh, payback, uh, minimal like, uh, disruption. Uh, it's a hot installation, so potentially no disruption. And, um, and uh, the solution is designed to be very fast and very easy to deploy. So during lockdown, we were able to ship boxes to Estonia, to uh, Russia, to uh, you know, uh, Norway, to Dubai, and perform 100% remote installations, which is a big, big plus. Uh, and it's also one of the reasons why we are talking to uh, energy utilities, because uh, we want uh, their team uh, to be able to deploy in the brain. And actually, me and you could deploy it. It's, a, it's, a, it's that simple. It's a, a sensors that are, um, are shipped already connected to the cloud. So every sensor has a, has a modem and a, and a connectivity that uh, it's working in the shipping box. We are monitoring the, uh, even that. And um, uh, the other, what we call e-nodes, uh, which, which are the actuator, uh, have a SIM card on board, uh, so they have uh, their own connectivity. Everything is, uh, um, is installable remotely. So to give you an idea, the largest installation today, we deploy 90 buildings uh, in 20 working days uh, using uh, four team of two electricians that we, um, so this is, I feel, uh, something that we're very proud of because we, we think it's a, it's a significant uh, uh, milestone and it speaks about the maturity of this technology. This is uh, the original kind of uh, inner brain. 
Moving on, we, of course, uh, uh, talking about focusing, we had customer asking, okay, well, how about uh, uh, doing also industrial application? Or, uh, you know, um, and, and really we had to, to think hard and decide if you wanted to, you know, go in a direction uh, that was a potential destruction. But what yeah. we learned um, by, uh, was uh, that actually with the industry 4.0 uh, incentives that exist in Italy, most of Europe, uh, um, you know, that market was actually moving very, very fast. And uh, um, so we created a custom application for Michelin where we are monitoring uh, uh, one of the largest factory they have in Italy. They, pr they produce the large tires um, for uh, all over the world. And um, this project is very interesting because we use our core product to generate savings. We are talking about uh, a plant that uses 7 million euros per year in energy. And 10% uh, is uh, HVAC, so heating and cooling. 90% uh, is process. We use the savings uh, from, the, uh, from the heating and cooling, which were amounting to 40% of that amount, to also, uh, to also put budget for uh, energy management system that was basically extracting data from the production line and giving them uh, real-time information on the cost of manufacturing a single tire in the morning, afternoon, and night shift. So in order to do that and to um, avoid the destruction, we created a, a dedicated team, which we call the you know, industry 4.0 kind of team. And uh, they, they kind of, uh, that partnership actually resulted in, um, uh, I, mean, I mean, that team, the business unity led to a frame agreement with uh, Fiat and uh, Edison. So we're very proud to say that uh, Enerbrain is powering uh, five plants of Fiat. There's more uh, to come in the coming years. And um, it actually, um, it was actually a bet uh, that, uh, that, proved, uh, that proved very uh, successful. Moving forward, as I said, uh, we are talking to utilities aggregated. You have to think that the world of energy has been uh, changing significantly over the past 10 years uh, because we had uh, kind of you know government utilities like very centralized uh, uh, control of the grid uh, low impact of renewables um, it's very different today because there's a lot of actors uh, renewable uh, having massive impact uh, in how we balance the grid and so uh, from here to the next 10 years uh, there's going to be again uh, probably uh, lots of merger and acquisition. We're going to see less actor, but more specialized. Uh, the business model is moving from uh, relying on the sale of the commodity to sell uh, services. So uh, our focus today is uh, to go in that direction. We're very well positioned because uh, our devices uh, and our offer is already appealing as it is, because we deliver efficiency, comfort, uh, and remote uh, like management tools. Uh, if we build on top of this, uh, the capability of uh, getting, uh, you know, being an enabler for the smart grid, uh, this is really like what uh, utilities, what the market is asking. There isn't much today 
um, to allow utilities uh, to perform a remote control. So demand side management is really balancing the grid uh, according to uh, the needs in terms of peaks, in terms of uh, um, load shifting. Uh, so we basically have an algorithm today that is taking two main inputs, which is comfort and savings. And tomorrow is going to be comfort savings and uh, uh, grid kind of uh, uh, demands. Got it. That's that's an amazing uh, explanation of uh, how the solution is evolving and how you are focusing on kind of concrete niche after niche. Also, very good insights on how to structure a squad around a specific vertical, like Industry 4.0. I think this is a very good. Uh, best practice also on the geographies um, component. You can also do uh, the same. And maybe let's go into into that point as well. Still inside radical focus. Uh, you said that you are uh, at this moment present in 13 or 12 markets uh, with with inner brain. So one of one of the mistakes that sometimes we see uh, is trying to attack too many markets, uh, too many geographies at um, at the same time, so what have been some of your lessons? And I know that you also have an interesting model for partnerships to make your solution more, more scalable and to be able to execute the strategy uh, faster, right? Yes, uh, of course, like uh, when um, I have to admit at the very beginning, we were very tactical in that sense, meaning there was an opportunity and we were, you know, chasing it. Uh, uh, very quickly, we learned uh, that uh, this is a defocus. It's a, it's a distraction. Um, so today uh, we have a model where, uh, when we look at a market, uh, we have uh, like a grid to establish if the price of energy is uh, is is right. Uh, because you know, selling energy efficiency in a market where energy is uh, incredibly cheap uh, might not be uh, that appealing. Uh, although I have to say there are countries like Nordics uh, that uh, are um, happy to accept a longer payback uh, because they have other motivations behind. Uh, but um, yeah, today we have uh, like uh, criteria to, to select a market. Then we typically go into, into the market uh, and find uh, like a high visibility project. In terms of Norway, to stay uh, in that market, we did a technical museum of Hos Oslo, with, uh, like a visibility again uh, opportunity. Uh, we used the first project to train uh, uh, a local partner, which usually is somebody that needs to uh, to be in the field, uh, so we can leverage his network, his knowledge, uh, and uh, you know, mm -hmm. its team. And um, and then we basically train them to perform uh, tasks uh, and in a way kind of uh, uh, leverage uh, our leverage them to 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 extend our our presence in this market. So um, this is true, uh, and it's one model. It's also we also have a second model which is uh, uh, JV. So when that relationship uh, needs to be very strong, uh, we have uh, the opportunity to, to do a JV. This is true outside of Europe uh, for now, because we feel uh, 
partners that are in another continent needs to have more skin in the game. And so we established a, a JV in Japan and a JV in Dubai because, uh, um, because we want uh, to, to have uh, you know, even more commitment from the local partner. And also because in these markets, uh, specifically Japan uh, and Middle East, uh, um, it's sort of a step that you need to take uh, in order to be taken seriously. Um, the third model is uh, to have uh, local offices. Uh, this is uh, a third model that we tried in Spain. And uh, we're going to expand in the countries where these utilities operate, uh, because the idea there is to have an inside salesperson. So uh, this utility is going to invest, uh, but the criteria really was to pick uh, a utility where uh, we could actually have commercial synergies, uh, and that's true. Um, and so in order to make this work, uh, we're going to have uh, enterprise people working from their offices, trying to get uh, all the projects, all the bids, all the tenders uh, um, that we can uh, kind of uh, digest and, uh, and work uh, in that way. So we have three models. Uh, this is um, the result of uh, the fact that on one end uh, we are flexible. So it, we have the luxury of uh, experiment and fail. And I can right. tell you that there's been failures of, uh, for sure, but uh, our process is always to uh, look at what we learn, uh, I mean, establish what we want to learn first, uh, what are the criteria, uh, we establish a budget at the time, uh, after the, the experiment uh, is, is over, we, we need to draw conclusions, and it's okay to, it's absolutely okay to fail. Um, so this is, uh, this is uh, how we operate today. Um, that's a cool agile mindset and, and some food for thought for uh, the scale-up leaders and founders that are uh, listening us. And um, so let's move into the world-class uh, leadership slash team slash culture uh, segments of, uh, of the conversation. Uh, I like a lot uh, the way you explained me in preparation of this session uh, about the family versus soccer team um, concepts. I would love you to talk a little bit about that. And also to, to comment the different transitions and what you think were the main lessons as you moved from four to eight to 16 to 32 and 50 people uh, this year with, with Inner Brain. Yeah, so... Uh... The way, the best way I can use to describe it is um, uh, like working in a different company every year. Exactly. Another way that I use, which is playing a video game where every year, every level has a, like a monster at the end. <laughs> you barely survive. <laughs> you make it next. But, you know, in a way, like a, a four-person, a four-people company is a different company from uh, uh, an eight people and then 16 or so. Um, you need to have, um, first of all, uh, the founding team needs to be very, very, very strong. Uh, like uh, there's going to be ups and downs, but the ups are really up uh, and the downs can be really, really low. Um, so having, uh, having co-founders that are with you and are always uh, um, 
kind of uh, are, are there to support you and you need to be there for them uh, is uh, the most important thing because uh, a lot of uh, uh, bad stories uh, come from uh, disagreement between co-founders. I think it's one of the first causes of uh, failure. Well, this is, again, I want to say is like the, the absolute uh, first pillar. Then uh, you need to being able to attract uh, the talent uh, uh, as you grow, because as I was explaining to you, um, in this uh, progression, it's almost like uh, if you are uh, an amateur like soccer team uh, that gets promoted to the, uh, you know, what's in Italian is Serie D and then Serie C and B and then the Premier League. And then you can go eventually to play in the Champions League. So uh, there's two phenomena that happen in this, uh, in this uh, journey. One end, as I was saying, you can attract uh, talents and players uh, that would have not played in your team uh, one or two or three years back. Uh, and so this raises the bar. But on the other end, you have uh, um, a responsibility to grow the group uh, that was with you. And uh, it's okay to, uh, if some of the, the players that were uh, perfectly fine at the beginning uh, leave for other job because uh, uh, you know companies need uh, different expertise in uh, you know in different uh, in different time and somebody might not like uh, the change as you grow mm-hmm. but um, exactly. there is still a core that is really 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 important and are the really 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 passionate ones that uh, are the right people for for you. And, uh, and they represent the critical kind of uh, uh, core. I think one of uh, my duty is to really uh, build uh, the perfect team in terms of uh, um, giving people challenges, like real challenges, uh, and uh, giving them the very best colleagues uh, uh, that it's possible. If you have these two ingredients, then you can attract and retain talent. Uh, uh, because this is, uh, these are the two uh, pieces uh, that you need to grow um, as an individual, to grow professionally. And, uh, and their brain mission is also uh, towards sustainability, decarbonization, a better world. So that is a big uh, motivation. Uh, you know, the purpose, uh, it's, uh, more, it's becoming more and more important and it's recognized as, a, as an important uh, element um, and, and I want to add uh, being really fast at understanding what are the gaps and, uh, and working on them. Uh, gaps can be everywhere in the organization starting from the management team uh, and really work on, um, on kind of uh, uh, caring about people because if you care about people, uh, they're they're going to care about your customers. Exactly, exactly. Kind of the Starbucks uh, mentality of uh, our Schultz. And uh, before moving into the culture of execution and talking a little bit more about the OKRs and the rituals to keep everyone on the same page, um, there is something that I also enjoy a lot on on your on one of your fellows of your culture, which is to embrace failure. You have, you have already commented that during the, the, the show, 
but could you highlight a little bit more uh, how you try to kind of embrace failure and embrace mistakes to to learn quickly and to improve mm -hmm. uh, as you are not as you said uh, in a in a in kind of sending no, no one for the space or uh, having a an important surgery that can cause the the death of a, of a person <laughs> yeah this is um uh, I read an article once that was about uh, creating, a, uh, from HBR, creating a psychologically safe uh, environment. Okay. Uh, and I think it's crucial to kind of um, think that there is not a playbook to a startup. Uh, we're doing new things. And uh, what you want to see is, uh, uh, or what you want to encourage, uh, it's uh, like entrepreneurship from people. Like uh, the idea of, uh, you, you want to have people that have an impact. And in order to have an impact, you need to have initiative, you need to have ownership, and you need to protect people from failure. Um, so we place bets every day, I was telling you, we place bets on uh, markets where we go. We place bets on products, uh, on, uh, uh, on people that we hire, uh, and on projects. Uh, if you have a process where you encourage people to take these bets, uh, you set uh, like a framework, uh, which is, okay, what is the hypothesis? What do we want to verify? How we are going to determine if uh, uh, you know, what's going to tell us that the answer is yes or no? You know, what is the criteria? Um, what is the timeline that we want to take? And then, uh, you know, if the hypothesis, for instance, we were doing an experiment uh, about marketing channels, uh, and one idea was, you know, maybe telemarketing could work for us, uh, but we don't know, right? It's a cold calling. Uh, uh, it's something that we never tried, and we set uh, a time, and, uh, you know, we learned that uh, um, so far, like uh, the results are not uh, kind of uh, not what we expect because, uh, you know, it, it takes a long time. I have to say like our uh, sales cycle is uh, nine to 18 months, sometimes even longer. So the hypothesis was, could we shorten this, you know, the, this time through telemarketing? And, uh, and the answer was no, this was an, uh, it, it didn't work at least uh, uh, on, the, on the verticals that we tried. And uh, you know, the, Stephanie, the marketing director was a little sad because she really, really wanted it to work. <laughs> say, oh, I'm so sorry, we invested so you know, much money and, uh, and time. But uh, I said, look, uh, it's, it's okay. Like it's not a failure, we learned something. Uh, you know, you're not gonna get, uh, um, you know, like you, you need to really encourage people uh, when they make a bet, when they, when they place uh, a bet, but also when they make a mistake. Because uh, I think uh, you never have, uh, just uh, this is our approach at least uh, about OKR, we don't use OKR to judge people, but we use OKR to measure and judge processes. And this uh, leaves uh, off the pressure from people because uh, they're not gonna. They know that they're not going to bet to, to you know to get their bonus paid uh, on that. 
so they so they risk more uh, i love it and i think that's one of the main mistakes with uh, okrs nowadays trying to make it an integrated and a kind of a 360 system and uh, kind of um, takes out the spirit of the OKRs, which is really trying to achieve moonshots, moon right? And uh, if it is related with bonus, we will start going much more for roof shots. I mean, trying to be much more cautious about what we define as a, as a success and challenge as a little bit less. And the other thing is, is really thinking that OKRs and uh, and the soccer team is a is a team sport, right? Mm -hmm. So of course the players need to perform very well individually, uh, but it's the team result that is the most important thing. Yeah. At the end. So if the company doesn't end or if the team doesn't doesn't win, sorry, if if the company or the win the team doesn't win, it doesn't matter that uh, that that player was the best uh, in the game, right? So. Yeah, we didn't achieve the goal. <laughs> so we have Ronaldo here in Torino. So you know, you went doesn't win automatically the Champions League because of, uh, of Ronaldo. Because uh, That's a good point, unfortunately. <laughs> and, uh, and and finally, you have already introduced it inside the culture of education segment, and and the last one, the importance of um, OKRs. And uh, I also believe that attached to OKRs, it's the importance of rituals. And I think that defining what means success and then having the weeklies, the monthlies, the quarterlies, the annuals, and always reviewing, learning as quickly as, as, as possible. Uh, if, we, if what we consider a good measurement of success is the right measurement or not to, to, to change that we to, that we found a better uh, metric to measure that success uh, and to learn as a team. I think that that's really the point. It's to learn as quickly as possible as a team so we can speed up execution and speed up uh, clarity. So do you have any specific rituals that are helping you to assure that everyone is on the same page? So any best practices, any lessons that, that you would like to share? With the community, yeah. First of all, uh, I have to say that OKR were tried uh, uh, last year and we failed spectacularly. <laughs> and the, the typical of the first uh, trial, uh, we learned that we it was um, like a, it was a high risk. Uh, but OKR are important because um, they really place an emphasis on stuff that it's important. Uh, but might not be urgent, and um, and on uh, transparency. So you commit publicly uh, about achieving something, and this is okay. a, a two, I think, uh, very important pieces. The idea behind it is uh, to get buy-in from uh, from uh, from people about. Uh, building a better company by working on, again, on the weakest link of the chain. So you say, okay, uh, we can go as fast as the um, slowest part. Uh, and uh, by fixing that, uh, I think uh, people get really, uh, and by doing that uh, on, a, on a quarterly basis, uh, I think people feel uh, um, that, they, that they actually can impact uh, and uh, their opinion counts and their efforts uh, are actually changing things. Uh, so it's a sense of empowerment first and foremost. Uh, um, out of all the rituals, 
I want to say the planning session is one of the most important because it's really the opportunity to, to sit down uh, with your team uh, and uh, again, discuss about all of these important topics uh, that are never urgent because uh, uh, there's always uh, a customer meeting that you want to take uh, rather than uh, fixing, I don't know, the HR process. Uh, but guess what? Uh, if you don't fix the HR process, uh, 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 the people that are going, that my, my, you know, you might not have an, uh, an, an employee that is as engaged uh, talking to the customer. So, um, so the two important rituals are definitely the planning session and I think the daily scrum. Like having at least uh, uh, this year, I think uh, for us having uh, 15 minutes uh, on the phone uh, or uh, your webcam. Uh, uh, every day, it's a very, very important feel, uh, like way of uh, feeling uh, kind of uh, part of a team, which in 2020, uh, because of remote working, uh, I think was a really, really important component uh, of, uh, you know, keeping the, keeping the team uh, together. Really, really uh, good point. Uh, the dailies also helped a lot. I think that a lot of teams that were kind of reticent or conservative about doing dailies, embracing dailies with with the pandemic because they they were kind of missing the the human touch and the regular contact. Uh, now working from home, right, and working remotely. And you have to, um, yeah, you have to think that uh, like a lot of people. Sorry, there's a, a lot of people are actually. Um, Mm. I, I, I actually uh, kind of uh, uh, reacting differently from uh, working remotely. And uh, there is a big uh, human part that is missing uh, now. Uh, and so these leader rituals, uh, may, you know, make up a lot uh, of, uh, of that. So let's go into the last question of the show. It's getting uh, a long one, but I, I found it, it it was useful to kind of go a little bit longer today. And uh, if you would have the opportunity to meet yourself uh, at the beginning of this journey or meet your younger self, Giuseppe, in, uh, in 2015, what advice would you offer to your younger Giuseppe? Okay, that's a that's a very very good question. Um, I think uh, it's probably to try to put. Uh, um, so I, I was always uh, interested in uh, learning best practices, uh, but uh, not necessarily fast uh, about implementing them and trying them quickly. So probably I would have implemented OKRs, uh, you know, uh, earlier. Probably I would have implemented the HR procedure, better HR procedure, better. Uh, in a way, I think the working on the culture from the very beginning, I think uh, it's something that really allows you to grow. So in a way, what I said at the very beginning, if you care about people, was something that we learned uh, was important about the, the time we were 30, 35 people and there was no HR function. 
And when you realize that, you're like, you're like, okay, wow, this is like, uh, this is urgent, and it's also important. So um, I think probably establish an HR function earlier would have been uh, better because uh, through HR you are actually building and retaining talent, uh, attracting talent, uh, which is single most important thing for you to succeed. Uh, so. Again, it's it's um, HR is something that you do not understand when you are. Uh, I mean, all the importance of HR processes uh, you don't understand when you are four or eight because at the very beginning a lot of startups grow uh, kind of through like uh, word of mouth. And so, uh, if you attract some talent, you're lucky to attract the first talents. Uh, then they call other talents. Uh, and so for us, at least we were very lucky because we get uh, we got the first core of people that was super uh, like engaged. But then uh, when you stretch the organization and you double every year, you have also to think that uh, uh, people get a lot of pressure. Like working in a startup and doing uh, uh, that path from uh, you know 100K to 80 million uh, and over, um, requires uh, a, uh, like certain people that are not the majority. So uh, identify them, keeping them, uh, you know, working. Uh, for instance, we established uh, an option pool, which is uh, common outside of Italy. But uh, for, for me, at least it was an idea that I took from working in the US. Um, but it wasn't very common. Like I think we were the very first uh, startup in Italy to have uh, um, uh, like um, a bylaws that allowed us to do that, uh, and we had to donate uh, shares uh, because uh, legally it was fairly complex. So we found a notary that was uh, really like an innovative uh, notary. That was uh, the one that helped us uh, write the bylaws to allow us to do something that no one else, uh, to his knowledge, uh, had implemented in Italy. So yeah. we're very proud of having do, uh, you know, having done that because uh, this is a really important uh, tool for growth, especially at the very beginning. You attract talent uh, through, uh, you know, through equity by making them feeling they're part of the team and. Uh, if uh, the project has success, they're going to see a share of that. Exactly. Love it. So thanks so much for making the time to tap it to share your journey and uh, and some of your lessons uh, with with the community today. Thanks again for your time. Thank you very much, Mike. Again, it was a pleasure. Uh, anytime. And to and to our community and to you that are tuning in the podcast, we keep bringing you the best of the best to help you scale your business from 1 million to 1 trillion. See you soon and keep scaling. But before we go, I almost forgot that this is an episode of a special season called Breakthrough Engineering with IMI, Hydronic Engineering. And now that's when I say goodbye, see you soon and keep scaling. Thank you.